Well, it was an ordinary day for a guy named Cameron. He was a 20-year-old college student, and he made his way down the steps of a New York City uh, subway station one day and waited for a train. Just a normal day, like any other day, but something went horribly wrong. Cameron uh, had a violent seizure. It sort of took over his body. He collapsed to the ground, disoriented. Somehow he managed to get up and stumble his way to the edge of the platform where he collapsed again. This time into the railway bed, right about the moment where the roar of the next train announced the imminent arrival of what was sure to be a lethal moment. And we don't have any video of what happened on the platform. This was a few years ago, but you can imagine how the people in the subway reacted. There had to be some eye closers. These were people who just couldn't bear to watch what was about to happen. And then there were some mannequins. These were people that uh, just sort of shut off their brain. They froze in place, unable to move, completely helpless. And then there, were, there had to be some people who were so focused on where they were going, probably missing late to an important meeting, that, that they just were oblivious to what was happening. They just completely lost it all. In, in just a few seconds, this young man with the dreams of his whole life in front of him would have his future cut short, and no one could stop it. No one would stop it, except one man did. Wesley Autry was also there that day. He was traveling with his two little girls when he saw it happen. Except he didn't close his eyes and he didn't freeze in place and he didn't just keep on going wherever he was going in the first place. He did something crazy. He left his two little girls on the platform and jumped into the path of the oncoming train and covered Cameron's body with his own. In spite of the uncontrolled convulsions that Cameron was having, Wesley stretched out his body on top of Cameron's and pushed both of them to the ground while the deafening roar of the subway train traveled less than two inches above his back. Two full cars passed over them, finally coming to a screeching halt, and even then, the two men were still underneath the train. Everybody thought they were dead. Even Wesley's two little girls who watched in horror as this happened thought they had lost their dad. And to be sure, that could have happened. It was the likely scenario, but it didn't. Underneath of the tonnage of transportation, Wesley was unharmed and Cameron was alive. This is Wesley Autry and his two girls soon after it happened. He was given hero awards and invited to the White House to meet then-President Bush, and he made all kinds of rounds on all the big-name talk shows. Everybody wanted to talk to him. Overnight, he became a sensation. And when he was interviewed over and over again about this, Autry said that when he saw the headlights of the train come around the corner, he knew he had to make an immediate decision that would also be irrevocable. He had to move forward. He couldn't go back. He said... I didn't feel like I did something spectacular. Isn't that spectacular that he would even say that? He said, I just saw somebody who needed help. I did what I felt was right. 
And then, I'm quoting him here, he said, you're supposed to come to people's rescue. You're supposed to come to people's rescue. There's something in this story about this guy right here and, and the daring rescue that inspires us all, but also, if I'm being honest, at least for me, it's a little convicting. I mean, what really penetrates is not just what he did, but his reasons behind it. And it makes me wonder, so fitting for this series, what is this thing in here that, makes, that would make me into the kind of person that would do something like that? I think God wants us all to care that much. And we, we probably won't all end up with our lives hovering less than two inches below a subway train. But the question is, do I care enough, do we care enough to actually put ourselves in harm's way, whatever that might look like? You cannot train yourself to behave that way. You have to train your soul to love that way. And that's what this series has been about. It's about what is happening inside of here. And I think God really cares about whether or not you and I care. In fact, this is illustrated in one of Jesus' most famous encounters, which we're going to unpack a little bit today. It comes from the book of Luke. It goes like this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. The law that he's an expert in is the law of Moses. This is religious law, like Ten Commandments and so on. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This guy has no idea that he's about to get a lesson in caring for other people. He thinks, when he says, what must I do to have eternal life, he thinks he's having a conversation about ideas. He thinks this is a philosophical debate. He has no idea that Jesus is about to throw him into the path of an oncoming train. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, well, what's written in the law? Which is, which is somewhat funny. He's an expert in the law. Jesus says, well, you're the expert. What's written in the law? How do you read it? Here's how the guy responds. He answers, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Technically speaking, that's implied. We'll see that in a second. Do this and you will live. In Matthew, we read that Jesus declared these two statements, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus had declared them as the most important of all the commandments. So this guy, his intellectual answer is correct. If he were taking a test here, he would get an A+, plus, a 100 but I want you to note the subtle statement that Jesus makes that will change the way, should change the way that you and I think. He says, do this and you will live. In other words, see, what, what, the, what the lawyer, the expert in the law is saying, is he's saying, I'm looking for the right answer. I'm looking for the right words. And what Jesus is saying is that saying you love God and saying you love your neighbor, it's nice. It sure does feel nice. Great thing to put on your social media wall. But if it's just words, it's meaningless. Actually doing those things, well, now that's life-giving. Remember, the guy said, 
what must I do to get eternal life? Jesus says, if you want eternal life, do loving God, do loving your neighbor. But the conversation wasn't over. So the expert in the law wanted to justify himself, so he asks Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? You ever baited somebody in a conversation, like you set them up? You gave them the bait, you hope they'd take it? Worse, have you ever been the victim of someone baiting you in a conversation? This actually happens in my marriage. It happens about once a month when Susan gets her hair cut. And guys, I know I'm not the only one this happens to. She gets her hair cut and waits to see how long it'll take for me to notice. It's a setup. Like we're doomed. And usually this goes on for, you know, a day or two, and at least 10 different people tell her how awesome her hair looks. At least five of them, stand, while I'm standing in front of the conversation, until I realize, oh no, I've screwed up again. <laughs> that was all, that was the story of my life until... We started using Google Calendar, and our calendars talk to each other, and now I just set it in alert, and it tells me when she's about to get her hair cut, and I call her on the phone while she, after she left the place, and I say, hey, your hair looks great. <laughs> this is a setup. It's actually a reverse setup. Jesus is setting the guy up. He knew the guy was going to ask this question, who's your neighbor? But the guy thinks he's setting Jesus up. It's a reverse setup. This is a battle of the minds, and in case you are wondering, you never want to go head-to-head against Jesus Christ. So the guy, we, we don't get to read inflection in the Bible. All we have are the words on the page. You have to see the story. I, I, if you've been around, you know I encourage you to do this. When I read the Bible, I try to see it. I try to hear it. I try to imagine it. I play the scene in my mind. I think the guy asked the question like this, huh, well, who's my neighbor? He thinks he's pulling one over on Jesus. And I think Jesus cracks half a smile. The guy's dying a thousand deaths in a war of wits against God himself. He just doesn't know it. So Jesus, with half a smile, I, I imagine this is not written in the Bible, but I can kind of hear Jesus whisper under his breath. The guy says, and who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, I'm glad you asked. So, Jesus says, God says, who's my neighbor? Jesus says, well, there was a man. He was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man and he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. There is a lot of information packed into just this little piece that you need to know. In about 30 seconds, you're gonna to wanna to check out, don't do it, it's important, okay? So stay with me. Jesus says there was a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Those places are intentional. They're not just random places Jesus picked, they're important to the story. From Jerusalem says that the guy is Jewish. And in Jesus's day, Jewish people uh, felt very oppressed. They were under Roman rule, they were a conquered people. They didn't, life didn't turn out the way they wanted it to be. So they felt like uh, the world's against us. We have to take care of each other. That history gets repeated, as you know. In fact, it's a pattern in the Jewish family system that becomes pervasive. It becomes part of their identity, and you can still see it today. You can see it play out in American politics. You can see it play out in international politics, even today. It says, 
Jewish people have to stick together because if we don't take care of ourselves, nobody else is going to take care of us. As a matter of fact, there's hostility against us. We have to stick together. So for whatever reason, this Jewish man decides to go from Jerusalem to Jericho, and Jericho is the hottest, oldest, and wildest city in Israel in that day. And the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was called the Bloody Road. It was called that because there were thieves and criminals who sort of lined that pathway and they kind of waited in the shadows for travelers to come along so they could do them harm, take their money. It was what you and I would call that part of uh, town, you know, that section or that area that's dangerous. And all the locals know we just don't go there. We especially don't go there at night, except the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was dangerous even in the daylight. This man was headed down from Jerusalem to Jericho, down because it was a rocky, hilly, and steep journey that where you descended about a thousand feet in elevation on the trip. Now, this is a parable. It's not a real story. It's a fictitious story. Jesus used this tool a lot, a fictitious story to reveal a spiritual truth. So this hypothetical man is traveling by himself for some unknown reason on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he gets attacked. No surprise. They beat him. They, they take off his clothes. They leave him naked and half dead. And then a priest comes by. Priests were also Jewish. Remember the man laying in the street is Jewish? Priests were Jewish. They were born into the priesthood. Jewish tradition and the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament sometimes, uh, we see that priests were appointed by God through their bloodline, their family heritage. They were descendants of Aaron. Aaron was the spokesperson for Moses. And they were also from the tribe of Levi. Those are two different things. Descendants of Aaron, tribe of Le- Levi. And when you, when you have that, those two components, you are a priest. You are born as a priest. And priests did priestly things. They did prayers and sacrifices and rituals. They were responsible for overseeing things that you would expect, things like uh, marriages and funerals and dedications. Priests were set apart, looked up to. Now, a priest, in order to be set apart, he had to remain holy in this particular tradition. And that meant that there were certain things that if he did, it would make him unholy, like touching a dead body. That would defile a priest. And he would have to go through this long, costly process in order to become holy again and purify himself so that he could return to his priestly duties. Now, back to the parable. The priest sees this badly injured fellow Jew stick together, sees him laying there, bleeding, naked, hurting, in trouble. And he crosses to the other side of the road and keeps going. A few minutes later, a Levite comes along. A Levite is also a Jewish person from the tribe of Levi, but he's not a descendant of Aaron, which means that he has some priestly duties, some religious duties in the sacred places of worship, but they're not all the way priestly. They're a little more mundane in terms of their tasks. Still, the important part is that he's Jewish. And the guy in the street is Jewish. My brother is laying there hurting in need of help. And the Levite also crosses the street and keeps going. And you and I think, well, that's how we know it's a parable from 2,000 years ago because nothing like that would ever happen in our world today, right? Really? Consider the story of Abraham Biggs. 
He was 19 years old. He was a college student and troubled. And his, his platform, his online community was bodybuilding.com, and he put at least, he put over 2,000 messages there unpacking his depression and his struggle with whether or not he wanted to continue to live. Lots of his posts talked about his personal demons there. And then on November the 19th, 2008, after posting several messages about his desire to end his own life, he put one final note up there. He swallowed a handful of pills in front of the camera and directed his online friends to watch him die live. So it was horrifying, as you can imagine, especially horrifying is that after investigators discovered his body after his suicide, they also learned that, that people in his online community actually encouraged him to do this. In fact, when they found his body, detectives discovered 181 people watching live in that moment. They had watched him die and they watched him lay there. Don't forget also that there were dozens, maybe more than dozens of people on the platform that day when Cameron fell into the subway. Only Wesley, he's the only one who stepped in to help. So maybe the parable is not such an ancient event after all. The priest and the Levite, they, they had some reason, I guess. We're not told what their reasons were that they avoided helping this guy. Maybe they were worried about their own safety. Maybe they didn't want to get dirty. Maybe they were late for a meeting. Maybe they thought he was dead already. Maybe they wondered if the criminals who beat that guy up are still lurking in the shadows and they're going to take me out too. Whatever it was, you can only make one for sure conclusion. And that's that they didn't care enough to risk their own welfare or their own convenience or their own religious notions in order to get involved and help somebody in need. But you see, if you care, you have to get involved. If you really care, you have to show up. If you really care, you got to do something when the need is staring you in the face. So Jesus wants us to know how important this is, which is why the parable isn't over. The priest and the Levite, they pass by, but a Samaritan, Jesus is still talking, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw the man, he took pity on him. He went, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn to take care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, which is like money, just money, and he gave them to the innkeeper, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. And, and if the story wasn't interesting enough, this is where it gets convicting. Because Jesus never loses, never wastes a moment to be intentional. See, Jesus chose the priest, he chose the Levi for this story, and he chose the Samaritans. Samaritans were hated by Jewish people. I don't use that term lightly. I mean hated. A few hundred years before this moment, in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire conquered the Jewish people. And when they did, so if you have this whole group of Jewish people, imagine this, here's the population and Jewish people, they stick together. And this, uh, the Assyrians cut the place in half, went to the north, grabbed half of these people, these Jewish people, and pulled them out and sent them in a faraway land. And then, he grabs, then they grabbed some of these other people who were not Jewish and they imported them over here into Samaria. 
And over time, they intermarried, which was a cardinal sin for a Jew in Jesus' day. So the pure-blood Jewish people in the South looked at their brothers and sisters in the North, in Samaria, as if they were half-blood, which if you were Jewish back then is worse, worse than being no blood at all. Jewish people, pure-blooded Jewish people, looked on their Jewish brothers and sisters in Samaria as despised and unwanted and disowned members of the family. If you were walking down the street in that day and you were Jewish and you saw a Samaritan person, you wouldn't wave, you wouldn't smile, you wouldn't speak, you'd scowl maybe. Jews hated Samaritans and Samaritans hated Jews because of it. So here's the story. After his own people walk over, ignore his beaten, naked, bloodied, half-dead body, then a Samaritan comes along. And we expect this guy to keep walking. This guy in the ditch expects him to keep walking. Everybody in Jesus' audience expects the Samaritan to keep walking. Because after all, if the roles were reversed, if the Samaritan were laying there, and the Jewish guy walked past him, he would keep walking. He wouldn't help him. But in the parable, the unthinkable happens. The one person who's supposed to be the enemy, the guy with tainted blood, who was both expected and in his right to let the guy in the street die, he not only stops, he goes all in. He risks being attacked by the criminals who might be lurking nearby. He uses his own resources to dress the wound and care for the man, puts the guy on his own donkey, which means he would be walking, puts him up at his own expense at a local hotel and guarantees the future cost with his own credit. He basically writes a blank check. And then he promises that he'll come back and check on the man. Who does that? Only somebody who really cares. That's all. And that's the story in this parable. It's the lesson that I think Jesus is trying to teach to all of us. The characteristic that God wants you and me to have is something deeply inside of here, and it's not just words. I think Jesus is saying caring is more than saying you care. It is doing care. It is not just a word, it is an action. But the action comes from something in here. It begins right here. Well, the parable's over. And now Jesus wants to reinforce it. So he asks the lawyer who thought he was setting Jesus up and now realizes he's the one that's been set up. He asked the lawyer, which of these three, the, Jew, the, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? There's only one answer. The guy, the guy can't answer anything else. So the expert in the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Remember how the conversation started? Before the parable began, the man wanted to test Jesus, so he asks Jesus, how do I in inherit eternal life? You and I probably wouldn't ask that. Lots of people wouldn't actually ask the question that way, but lots of people would ask it this way. They would say, what does it take for me to be right with God? How do I be right with God? And Jesus says, well, want to be right with God? You have to love God 
and love your neighbor like the parable. The man, the expert in the law, was looking to win a spiritual argument with a legal loophole, which is why he asked for the technical definition of neighbor. And as I study the text this week, and I've, I've read this piece of scripture about a thousand times, it's a very popular parable. One of the most known parables of all. I mean, we even use this in our culture, right? The, the, uh, the phrase, the good Samaritan, is something that is culturally significant. Even if people don't know where it came from, this is where it came from. So as I read this and studied it, I realized for the first time this week that Jesus wasn't actually trying to define who a neighbor is. I thought he was trying, I, I mean, the guy asked who's your, you know, Jesus, and then Jesus says to the guy, who's your, you know, which one's the neighbor? I always thought Jesus was trying to define neighbor. It turns out Jesus was really trying to define me and you. He was trying to show us what it looks like if you don't just say you care, but if you really care, regardless of who the person is who's in need. Practically speaking, as I tried to dissect this and say, what are the components here? I, I began to see that, that somebody who really cares, somebody who really cares is somebody who will show up. And, and somebody who really cares is somebody who will sacrifice. And somebody who really cares is a person who's willing to reschedule. In other words, if I put an umbrella over this, I would say care has a cost. And there's really no other way around it. If you're not willing to pay the price, then, it, then it's a soul issue for you. And that's a good thing once we identify it. Because God is in the business of building character into our soul. I'm going to show you how this plays out, uh, played out in a real way for me this past week in just a minute. But I want to reiterate that the hero in the parable is the guy nobody expects to help, but he does. Now, how does he do it? He shows up. And then he sacrifices his personal money and puts his credit on the line, tells the innkeeper he'll cover the expenses, and then he reschedules, at least in part, and we're not told what he's doing, but he's going somewhere for some reason. He's not just waiting around. It's not like he was sitting there thinking, I can't wait for the moment when I can actually care for somebody. That wasn't on his agenda. And I finally understood that the good Samaritan lived his life just like you and I live ours. He's busy. He's on his way to something he's supposed to attend. He's got a schedule he's got to keep. But care took priority over calendar. Care took priority over calendar. And so he rescheduled whatever, and he stepped in to help. So I'm writing this message this week, and I'm studying which is what I do when I develop messages and I'm finding stories and I'm crafting sentences and I'm praying and I'm listening to God and I'm reading stuff. This is what I do. I have a very specific routine for this. I have a, I have a time, some slots, long periods of time that are dedicated and carved out and they're sacred and they're untouchable by anybody. There are certain times that people know in my inner circle, the people who are right around me, they know I'm out of touch. You can call me, but I'm not going to answer. I disconnect everything. I cut off all the devices and the email and, and everything. I always say, listen, if there's something really, really bad, you're going to have to knock on the door because I don't know what's going on in the outside world. And, and, and that's how I do it. And, and so I don't meet with people during that time. Sunday is coming. 
It comes with amazing regularity every seven days, pretty much. And so I'm, this week, I'm hunkered down, and I'm making progress, and I, I feel like it's coming along. I'm writing well. I'm connecting with God. The message is developing. And then all of a sudden, it just stops. It was the weirdest thing. I, I can't remember this ever happening to me before. I literally felt like my fingers were, were frozen. My hands stopped working. I, I, I felt like I couldn't type another word. And then I heard God speak, and I know that sounds weird to some of us, like, like, what does that really mean? God did not video chat me, I didn't get a call from him, there's no text, message, no text messaging between me and God, but here's the thing, when you, when you draw close to God long enough, you recognize his voice. Jesus said that, he said, my, I'm the shepherd, my sheep know my voice. And so I, I heard the unmistakable voice of God right in the middle of this sacred, untouchable moment say, go right now and see some people who need help. And I tried to argue with God. I don't know if you've ever done this. It never works. But I said, now? Really? God, are, like, are you kidding? This is like sacred writing time. God, do you understand sacred? That's like you and me. I don't know if you understand this, God, but unless you're willing to move Sunday out, I have a deadline to meet. And I heard... God, give me my own words back. I had crafted some of what I've already shared with you, and, and I, I heard God say, um, if you care, you show up, and you sacrifice, and you reschedule. Care overrides calendar. Didn't you just say that? You know, which leaves you somewhat speechless. And so then I, I heard God say the most convicting part for me, which was really hard to hear, was I, I heard the voice of God say, are you just going to teach this stuff? Or are you willing to actually go live it? Because this is inconvenient. Are you going to reschedule or not? So I, I stopped what I was doing. And I got in, I went, I put my shoes on and I got in the car. And I literally got in the car with no plan. I, I got in the car and I prayed. I said, okay, God, where am I going? I know lots of, I can name lots of people who need some encouragement, who would appreciate somebody to pray with them, who might be struggling in some way. I can't go see them all. So I just prayed and God brought to my mind uh, two people I know who I love. Um, the husband has been in the hospital for many months, months, literally. I've been to see them before, but uh, he's struggling with a disease that may very well take his life. And so I said, okay. I, I drove to Charlottesville and went through the maze in, in the hospital and sat with them. And I, we laughed a little and cried some and prayed together. And so I realized, you know, I love, these are people I love, but God loves them more. It was really a sacred moment. And I left, I get in the car, I start the car, I put my hands on the steering wheel and I say, okay, God, who's next? And I heard him say clearly, uh, Steve and Peggy. So the Bickfords are close friends, and they're important members of this family right here at PCC. And Peggy has uh, brain cancer. And so I called Steve out of the blue, and I said, hey, can I come by? And 90 minutes later, I was sitting in their living room and we had 
sacred time together and caught up and and then we walked out and as we walked out Steve went with me it was just me and him on the sidewalk and he he told me something I will never uh, forget he said a few days ago I sat down to type a message to you and I was gonna send it to you and to Beth Stoddard and I I wanted you to know that we're, we're struggling here a little bit now. But I never sent the message. And I don't really know why. He said, instead, I just stopped typing and I started praying. And I asked God if he would just remind me how much he cares and, and, if, and if, if he would remind me that God is aware of what's happening in my life, that he knows that we're struggling. And then Steve looked right at me and he said, I didn't send you that message. I sent the message to God and he related to you and here you are. And I was stunned. And I, I kept it together till I got in the car and drove around the corner and stopped and sobbed and and thanked God, thanked God that I got to be a part of a holy moment. That God did, didn't just do something for whoever I went to see that day, but he was trying to teach me something important. That, that care is not a box you check off. It, it's something deep inside of us that God wants to do in the character that is in the depths of our soul. And out of that, we show up and we sacrifice. And we reschedule. Jesus said, that kind of care, when you love people that much, that way, in a tangible, active way, that's how you get right with God. That's how you get eternal life. So as we wrap up this series today, a series we've been talking about that focused hopefully on what's in here, not just what's out there, I want to ask you to join with me at every one of our campuses online and in this room. Let's join our hearts together and let's pray to the one who can do something about what's in here. God, we're just so grateful today that again and again, every time we try to control and do and manufacture and manipulate, that you're the one that reminds us that you're in charge and we're not. And if only we would take a step back and listen to your voice, amazing, earth-shattering, life-altering things will happen. Would you help us do that, God? Would you just help us to be still long enough to hear your voice and give us the courage to show up, to sacrifice, to reschedule, to let care override our calendar? At the end of it all, God, we want to be who you created us to be, who you dream of us being, who you want us to be. May that be true for each one of us through the power and in the name of Jesus. Amen.